So I was thinking this week, what are the most quoted movies of all time? The most quoted movies of all time. So I did a Google search and, and found all these different lists, and I came up with 10. I think these are 10 of the most quoted movies. I know afterwards you're going to come up to me and you're going to have other ones. I get it. I get it. There's lots. There's lots. But here's 10, and uh, some of these you'll know. The Princess Bride. I was at a wedding last night, Katie Bailey, uh, the Bailey family here at our church. She got married yesterday, and during the... Um, uh, what's it called? During the toast, somebody quoted the priest from the Princess Bride. Marriage, you know, that whole, that whole thing. So Princess Bride, uh, The Sandlot, classic. Come on, you're killing me, Smalls. Uh, Forrest Gump, Mean Girls. I won't quote that one. Uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Anchorman, also will not quote that one. Uh, Star Wars movies, Office Space, Napoleon Dynamite, the Godfather. It's not a bad top 10 list. I, I know that there's others. And then what are the most quoted TV shows ever? I think of shows like Saturday Night Live, The Simpsons, Seinfeld, Friends, and of course, number one, The Office. The Office has to be the number one quoted television show of all time. Well, which psalm, we're in our summer in the psalm series, which psalm is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament? I think many people would think maybe it's the 23rd Psalm because everybody loves that Psalm so much. Or maybe you would think it must be Psalm 119. It's, it's so long. It has to be that Psalm. The most quoted Psalm in the New Testament is actually the Psalm we're looking at this morning. It's Psalm 110. In fact, just the first verse alone is referenced over 27 times in the New Testament. So what is it with this Psalm? Psalm 110 is a royal Psalm it's a psalm that's written about a king, a psalm that would have been sung at a coronation of a king. And so this morning, here's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about what it means to have a king. Now, you might be thinking, what does a king have to do with me? We don't live in a monarchy. We don't have a royal family. Uh, we don't have anyone ruling over us. I mean, come on, we're Americans. We got rid of a king 200 years ago. We don't need to know about what it means to have a king. But I want to encourage you this morning to lean in and consider that this might have more to do with you than you think. And we're going to read this short psalm together. It's just seven verses. And as we read it, there are some very obvious things, and then there are some obscure things. We're going to try and make sense of it together this morning. So let's read, beginning in verse 1. I'm reading to you from the ESV translation. It says this, A psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand, and he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Okay, two things this morning that we're going to learn from this psalm. Number one, we're going to learn that we all need a king. We all need a king. And the second thing we're going to learn, we're going to learn about the king we all need. So we all need a king, and the king we all need. Let's talk first about this truth that we all need a king. Now, in verse 1, there's a couple clues, a couple very important clues that we have to notice, otherwise we're not going to understand the rest of the psalm. Okay, so let's look at verse 1, where it says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. But before that, it actually says, a psalm of David. 
Now, in some cases, we don't know who wrote the psalm. And in many cases, it actually isn't very important. It doesn't really matter who wrote the psalm. But with Psalm 110, it matters. It's a big deal that David, King David, was the author of this psalm. Because it gives us a clue. It gives us a clue to the nature of the king. Now, when it says, the Lord says to my Lord, if you noticed it, the first Lord is in all caps, L-O-R-D, all caps. And everybody knows that studies the scriptures that that references God, Yahweh. So that is the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord. Who is my Lord? And here's the question that people would have thought when they first heard this song, especially when they learned that David wrote it. How can David call someone his Lord? He's the king. There's no one higher in Israel than David. And David is writing a song about his Lord, about his king. They're probably thinking, the king doesn't answer to anyone. No one challenges the king. There's no checks and balances like there is in democracy. So what does this mean? Who is this king? Who is this psalm about? Now, each of the synoptic gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, records Jesus quoting this verse. And when he quotes this verse, Jesus always points out to this thing we're talking about right now. Jesus always says, basically, isn't it interesting that David said he had a Lord? And what Jesus is pointing out is that there was a king that was going to come someday that was greater than David. And for the Jewish person, it was clear this king was the Messiah, the anointed one, the king that everyone was waiting for. And this idea is affirmed over and over in the New Testament, the truth that the risen Lord Jesus is the reigning messianic king who is now seated at God's right hand. We read about it in Acts, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, four times in the book of Hebrews, and once in 1 Peter, the New Testament affirms over and over this king that David was writing about thousands of years ago. When, Jesus, when David said, the Lord says to my Lord, he was saying, about, he was talking about Jesus. David the king has a king. So here's a clue to the nature of the king, that it's a true and it's a greater king. But the other thing that we see in verse 1 is not just a clue about the nature of the king, but a clue to the nature of the people, the nature of the people. See, when the readers realized that David had a king, just like all the people, it would have reminded them, and it should remind us today, that everyone has a king. Everyone has a king. And when we go through the Old Testament, uh, let me just give you a real quick overview of some storyline stuff. God chooses a person named Abraham, and through Abraham, he chooses a people who will know him and belong to him so that he might bless the nations of the world through them. They are his people, the people of Israel, and he is their God. He is their king. But in time, by the time we get to 1 Samuel, they don't want God as their king anymore. They want a different king. They want a king of their own choosing. And so the elders of the people, the leaders of the people, they come before the prophet Samuel and they say, Samuel, we want to be like everybody else. Give us a king. Samuel is brokenhearted. He feels like he's been rejected and he goes to God and God says, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. And there's this important verse in 1 Samuel 8. We'll read together verses 19 and 20. He comes back to the people and he says, this is going to be bad for you. This king is going to require your life of you. This king is going to take things from you. He's going to take your sons and your daughters and your property. You don't want a king. And look at what they say in verse 19. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations. And here's the key phrase, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. We want someone to lead us, to go out before us and to fight our battles. So what does a king represent? A king is a source of strength. 
a source of security, a source of stability. A king is someone or something to protect us and to provide for us. A king is someone or something that's worth our loyalty, worth our love, worth our devotion, worth our worship. And a king is someone or something to look to in life, believing that that thing is looking out for me. So I look to it because I believe it's looking out for me, and that thing will lead me through life. And everyone has a king. Everyone has something that they're looking to and that they're placing their hope in and that they're placing their trust in for security, for stability, for strength, for all of those things. Philosopher James K. Smith says that to be human means to have a vision of the good life, to believe that out there there's something that's so wonderful, so true, that it's worth living. It's the vision of the good life. And you're gripped by that vision in a way that both compels you and controls you. It's both your motivation, sort of your engine, and it's your destination. It's your target. And our vision of the good life, whatever your vision of the good life is, it represents or reveals who your true king is. And our entire lives are spent in homage to that king, bowed before that thing. So who is your king? What is your king? How do you know who your king is this morning? And this morning, Jeannie uh, shared a word with us about how Jesus doesn't just want to be our savior, he wants to be our Lord. It's very timely, because that's what we're talking about this morning. Who is the Lord of your life? Who is your king? How do you know who your true king is? I'm going to give you a bunch of words that start with the letter A that I think are going to help you remember this. Here's how you know who your true king is. Listen to this. Where do you give allegiance? Where does your deepest loyalty lie? What battles are you fighting and for who and for what? Where do you direct your attention? Where does your mind wander when you have nothing else to think about? For me, it's lunch, but for you, maybe it's it's something else. Where do you give and lavish your affection? Okay, so there's your words. Attention, allegiance, affection. Where is it directed? And also, what are you holding on to? What are you leveraging to bring approval, acceptance, and access into your life. So what is the thing that you're looking to saying, if I have that, if I accomplish that, if I get to that, then I will be worth uh, the space I, I take up. Or what's the thing that you look to and you say, I will fight to the death for that cause, for that view, for that belief, for that truth. What is that thing? Or where do you give your love? Where do you give your attention? Those are the kings in our lives. Those are at least the clues to what is your true king. And as humans, we have this propensity in our nature to make things into kings, right? We make stuff into God. We make good things into God things. Let me give you some examples. Let me drill in a little bit here and try to help you maybe identify what what your kings in your life may be. What do you think you're great at? What do you want to be known for? What makes you special? What, like, if you think about this room right now and you were to say, in this room right now, I'm in the top 10% of all these people in this category. So I'm definitely top 10% best looking in this room. Maybe some of you are thinking right now, you're looking around the room going, uh, I, I'm a shining star in this room. Uh, maybe some of you look around this room and you think, I'm probably top 10% in this room educated. Top 10% in this room wealthy. Top 10% in this room talented. Top 10% in this room interesting. Top 10% enlightened. Top 10% moral. Top 10% spiritual. Maybe while we were singing, you looked around the room and you thought, I'm definitely, when it comes to worshiping, I'm top 10%. Look at both my hands are up. I'm top 10%, right? And so what is that thing that you sort of think, this is the category that I shine in that, that sets me apart? Well, well, pay attention to that because that could be the area of your life where you, you put your hope and your trust and you look to for security um, 
and identity. What do you obsess about? What can't you stop thinking about? What are you sort of always worried about? What makes you most anxious? Whatever that thing is, it might have some control over you. I was, uh, I was listening to a podcast this past week, um, This American Life, NPR's one of their podcasts, and it was based on a book called The Feather Thief. And it's a book by a guy named Kirk Johnson. And it was a fascinating story. It's a, you've probably not heard this story unless you listen to this podcast. It's about a man named Edwin Rist. He was a 20-year-old American, one of the best flute players in the world. But he broke into the British Natural um, Museum. He breaks into the British Natural, Natural History Museum, and he stuffed a suitcase full of 300 of the rarest, most dazzling species of birds. I mean, out of everything he could have stolen, he goes and finds this, this, this collection of 300 very rare, very unusual birds. He stuffs them in a suitcase, and he, he basically got away with it for years. And finally, they caught him. Now, why did he do it? The reason why he did it was he wanted their feathers. He was what's called a fly tire. Does anybody know what a fly tire is? Anybody a fish? Fly tires, they make these little fishing flies, especially when they fish for certain fish like salmon, and it's just this beautiful little um, fly tie that's made out of beautiful feathers, and they're worth lots and lots of money. But it really wasn't about the money for him. It was about the craftsmanship for him. It was about having access to the most wonderful feathers in the world so he can make the most wonderful fly ties in the world. And I was listening to this podcast, and I couldn't understand his obsession. Like, to me, that is bizarre. First off, it sounds like way too much crafting. I don't have time for that. I, I don't have energy for that. I don't, I don't have the passion for that. But as, they were list, as I was listening to the podcast, one of the other fly tires, one of the other best fly tires in the world, because this guy was like the best, one of the other best in the world said, I started thinking about all these feathers I don't have. And he said this, it's all I could think about. And then he said, it haunted me. And I thought, that's weird. That's so, that's so weird. Little bird feathers haunting you. Obsessed about little, uh, getting little bird feathers so you can glue them together. They have actually very little functional use, I guess, when it comes to fishing. Listen, I'm all for anything that gets salmon to my plate faster, but, but, but these fly ties aren't about that. It's just about aesthetics and beauty. And we, we hear stories like that, and we hear about people's obsessions with all sorts of weird, bizarre things and sort of niche interests and stuff, and we say they're ridiculous because we're not obsessed about them. We don't, we, we don't, we can't identify that, but we all do have things that we sort of over obsess about, right? We do all have things that sort of control our minds and we, we worry a lot about. And pay attention to that because whatever the thing is that you're hoping will come out of that, it might be your true king. Here's some other things that can be your kings. Uh, whatever it is that you hope to achieve and accomplish with your life, your career, your, 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 your wealth, um, the ideas that you attach your identity to, the beliefs that you attach your identity to, who you want to be with or who you want to be. Sometimes our, our true king is another person. Or it's not even a person. It's just the idea of a person. Some people, uh, you know, whether you're single or married, you can have an idea of a person that you obsess about. Uh, a different version of your spouse or uh, a future spouse. And so there are things that we obsess about that we think about and they have power over us. Now, why do we do this? We do this because we all need a king. We all need something. And at the heart of choosing our own king, it's ultimately this, isn't it? It's ultimately me choosing me as king of my own life. See, the second I want another king besides God, I already have one and it's me. I'm thinking, God, I don't want you to be king of my life. I want to be king of my own life. I was thinking of that song that Simba 
sings in The Lion King. Do you remember that song, Just Can't Wait to Be King? Here's some lyrics if you don't remember. No one's saying do this. No one's saying be there. No one's saying stop that. No one's saying see here. Free to run around all day. Free to do it all my way. That's kind of the human heart, right? I mean, that actually sounds a lot like my daughter's. Like, they would love for my, my, my oldest daughter, Lilia, when she thinks about being an adult, the thing that she's most excited about is that I, she can do whatever she wants. That's what she says. I can't wait to be an adult. Why? Because then you can, I can do anything I want. I can do whatever I want. I can eat whatever I want. I can go to bed whenever I want. I can play Minecraft for eight straight hours, and no one's going no to tell me otherwise. I said, yep, and you're going to have bills to pay, and you're going to have lots of other stuff to deal with. But that's sort of the vision. But the vision is like, what would life be like if no one told me what to do, and I just was completely in control of my own uh, sort of uh, destiny and my own future? Because we want to make ourselves king. Okay, so we all need a king. Second thing we learn from this psalm is this. There is a king that we all need. Two things about this king, and the first one is this, and this is in your notes if you want to fill it in. The king that we all need, the first characteristic about that king is it's a king who uses his power for his people. A king who uses his power for his people. Right at the beginning of this psalm, it says that the king is sitting at the right hand of God. Now, the right hand represents a place of honor, a place of authority, but it also represents a place of power, like real power. And the opening verses of this psalm are loaded with language. Did you catch it? Lots of power in this psalm, isn't there? It talks about making your enemies your footstool. Right, Literally putting your foot on the neck of your enemies, which was a practice of ancient Near Eastern kings, that when they were defeat a nation, they would bring the other king in and they would cause that king to bow down before the conquering king. And the conquering king would literally put his foot on the neck of the defeated king. Talk about a moment of humiliation. That's the imagery that the psalmist is pulling here. How about the language of a mighty scepter, this sort of ruling rod? Uh, it talks about how you will rule in the midst of your enemies. Even as your enemies surround you, you'll still rule with power. And that actually uses the phrase day of power. So we're talking about power. But there's a problem with power, isn't there? Lord Acton, a British historian, the late 19th, early 20th century, was, he said this. You've heard this before, but maybe you didn't know he was the one who said it. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. How many of you heard that? You've heard that before. Lord Acton, this British historian, was the first one to say it, apparently. Power corrupts. What he's saying is, as soon as you give somebody power, it begins to corrode them from the inside out. And when someone has absolute power, like a king, they can't stand underneath that power. That power will eventually destroy them. It will ruin them. I was reading an article earlier this week from Harvard Business Review, and it was titled this, Why Great Success can bring out the worst parts of our personalities. While great, some of you are like, let's just test it. Just let me have some success and we'll just test it out. Why great success can bring out the worst part of our personalities. Let me read to you two sentences from the article. Success often strengthens the undesirable side of people's personalities. Perhaps because power lowers their motivation to positively manage their reputation. It's much deeper than that, but that's what they're saying. The more power and influence you have, the less interested you will be in pleasing other people and in keeping your dark side in check. Now listen, you don't have to you don't have to go through the news very much for the last year to see so many examples of this. People in power abusing their power. 
When people get power, it tends to control them. It tends to ruin them. So leaders and kings and people in power, they don't historically use their power for their people. They wield their power over their people. So they have all this power, and so now they use this power to get what they want, or they leverage their power against their people to enslave them and to make them do what they want. So kings use their power to get their way. And then in verse 6, it says that when a king comes through and victorious, it leaves behind him a pile of corpses. Did you see that when we read it earlier? A pile of corpses behind the king. And the psalmist is saying this is what it looks like when a king wields his or her power. Well, what does this mean for you and me? When you serve the king of your own choosing, when you choose your own king and you serve it, you better be prepared to give your life to do so. Because your king will always require more of you. Your king will never satisfy you. And if you fail your king, whatever that thing is, success, approval, uh, a relationship, an idea, independence, if you fail it, it has no power to forgive you or free you. And when people fail their king, that's when they don't want to live anymore. That's when they can't see a way forward. And if you look around and you look at celebrities and you look at people who are miserable, even though they have, seem to have the world on a string, many of them will say, I remember an interview with Jim Carrey a few years ago where he said, I wish everybody would get rich and famous like me so they could realize it's, it's not what they want. It's not enough. It doesn't satisfy. I've said this before, but the only thing worse than not getting what you think you want is getting it and then realizing it was never enough to begin with. Those are the most miserable people on the planet. Because as long as you don't have what you think you want, you at least have an excuse for not being happy. But the second you get it, and you're still stuck with you, that's a pretty dark place to be, and some people never find their way out of that. So this is the big deal. When you serve the king of your own choosing, you better be prepared to give your life for that thing. People do that. They work themselves to death. They starve themselves to death. They worry themselves to death. And when you look around, you realize that people are enslaved at what they're great at. I was listening to an interview a few months ago where Malcolm Gladwell, this Canadian author, was interviewing a French comedian named Gad. And this guy, uh, he, he was number one. They called him the Jerry Seinfeld of France. He was the number one comedian in France. Everybody loved him. But he decided to give it all up to come to America to try to be funny in America. And being funny in America is much different than being funny in France. I didn't know all the details, but in France, for example, comedy is much more physical. In America, it's much more observational. Uh, There's very different styles. And of course, he had to actually learn how to speak English well so he could deliver a joke well. And so uh, Jerry Seinfeld actually was talking to Gad, and he's like, why did you do this? And Gad said, he's like, you had everything over there. And he said, I was getting depressed, discouraged, and dissatisfied with the crowds in France. And Seinfeld said, why? He said, because they would laugh even if my joke wasn't funny because of my reputation. They knew I was supposed to be funny. They knew I was great, a great comedian. So they were laughing. Even when I would try to say serious things to my friends, they would laugh because that was my reputation. That's what I was great at. It's like, what you're great at, you think will satisfy you, but eventually it's it won't, it won't be enough. You think you have a king, but here's what you're going to learn in time. That king actually has you. It has all the power. Now, Jesus is the good king who used his power for his people. How do we know that? In verse 3, it says this, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Something, leave that verse up for a second. It says... 
Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Here's what you're saying. When this king shows up, when this king rolls up his sleeves, when this king flexes, when this king shows his power, people are going to look at it and they're not going to fear and they're not going to tremble and they're not going to be enslaved. But what are they going to do? They're going to freely give themselves. Well, who freely gives themselves to a king who uses his power against them? You might have to give your freedom to that king, but you don't want to. Jesus is the only king who first wins our hearts. And in winning our heart, he sets us free. In fact, the the best translation of this, your people will offer themselves freely, is this. Your people will give themselves as a free will offering. And that's what it talks about in the New Testament, that now our lives are, we're living sacrifice. We, We freely give ourselves. And here's what I want you to consider about Jesus this morning as we start to close. Jesus wasn't just willing to use his power for his people. Jesus was willing to lose his power for his people, to lay down his life, to suffer and die, and to lay down power for weakness. And then lastly this morning, we need a king who uses his power for his people, but we also need a king who uses his access for his people. Let's read verse four together again. It says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Here's a, here, is a, here is a divine oracle and a divine oath. And he says, you are a priest, talking to the king. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, that doesn't seem weird to you maybe, but it seemed very weird to the people who first heard this song. You know why? Because every single Jewish person knew the king and the priest were not the same person. The king had power, the priest had access, and there are times where the king would do priestly things. There's some occasions, for example, where David did some priestly uh, practices, but generally speaking, the king and the priest, they're different people. They weren't doing the same thing. They were from different tribes. They were from different lines. And here, the psalmist is looking to the future, looking to Jesus and saying, you're not just the good king who uses your power for the people. You're gonna be a priest who's gonna use your access to God for your people. The priest, what would the priest do in the Old Testament? The priest approached God and acted on behalf of the people. He made a sacrifice for them, for their sins. He represented them. And in this psalm, David sees a greater king who is coming, who will also be a greater priest forever. Melchizedek is this ancient guy in Genesis. He was king in Salem, but he was also priest. And he was like a foreshadow, a forerunner of Jesus. And Jesus now brings those two roles together, priest and king. And as the great high priest seated at the right hand of the Father, we know two things. Number one, Jesus has constant access and favor, which he's using not for himself, but he's using for you. The access he has to God that he received because of his work, he's using it for you. But also, because he's not standing at God's side, but he's seated at God's side, we know something else. His work is done. His work is complete. His work is sufficient. I'm not going to read it to you, but in Hebrews 10, the author says, priests had to stand by the altar day after day after day in the Old Testament. They had to stand. They couldn't sit. Why? Why? Because people can't stop sinning. Have you noticed that about yourself? No? Just me? Can't stop sinning. Can't stop wanting things more than Jesus. Can't stop trusting in things. Our, our hearts so prone to wander. And because people are sinning, even if we're in Christ, even if we are positionally righteous before the Father, functionally, we're still becoming more righteous, right? No one in this room is perfectly righteous. We are, on one hand, we are positionally perfectly righteous, but behaviorally, we're not there yet. We're still learning. We're still growing. And because people keep sinning, the priest had to stand on guard, ready to always make sacrifice. Oh, you sinned again? Sacrifice. You sinned again? Sacrifice. 
But then the author in Hebrews says, not Jesus. He's not standing. He's not going to keep. He's seated because his sacrifice was enough. Once and for all, he did what's necessary. Do you know what that means for you and me? We don't make ourselves right through our sacrifices and through our good acts and through our moral living and through our religious activity. Those things don't make us right before God. Those things are heart responses when we realize that we've been made right before God because of Jesus, our great high priest, the true and better priest who didn't just make or offer a sacrifice for his people, but he became the sacrifice. Once a year, my family and I do a, what we call a food tour in New York City. It's exactly what it sounds like. We walk around and we eat a lot of different food. And a lot of research goes into it. And I map it out and I got it all planned. And so last week or two weeks ago, we went down to Brooklyn. We've always done it in Manhattan. And by the way, I recommend Manhattan over Brooklyn now that I've done both. Uh, we, we went to Brooklyn and we mapped out all these places. But the very first place we went was a very special restaurant. And I read about it in a magazine. And the reason why it was so special is because the name of this restaurant is Lilia. And if you don't know this, if you don't know me, my oldest daughter, 10-year-old daughter, her name is Lilia. And we thought, this is amazing, a restaurant with the same name as Lily. And so we went to the restaurant. Here's a picture of her standing in the restaurant. And they gave her this hat, uh, which says Lilia on it. And we're, I was trying to understand, why did you pick the name Lilia? And I read online, it wasn't a very inspirational answer. They basically said, we wanted a name that sounded Italian. It's, a, it's an Italian restaurant. And uh, we wanted a name that sounded feminine. And we wanted one word. And so they came up with Lilia. And I said, well, that kind of ruins the whole thing. But... Um, <laughs> You know why we chose Lilia? We love the name. But also, here's what Lilia means. The name Lilia means, what is mine belongs to God. What is, what's mine belongs to God. You know what? Apart from knowing Jesus as the better king and the better priest, you know what our hearts are going to say instead of that? What is mine belongs to me. This is my life. I'm going to live it the way I want. This is uh, my body, my mind, my soul, my spirit. I, I'm going to live the way I want, and no one's going to tell me that I can't do this, that I can't be that, that I can't be free. And you think you're free, but you're not. You just chose a different king. That's all you've done. You've not gotten out from under the rule of a king. You've just put yourself under the rule of another king. And that king you're ruled by didn't die for you. He didn't give his life for you. He's not seated now at the right-hand side of the Father making intercession for you. That king doesn't give a rip about you. That king will lead you to your death, both physically and spiritually. But only Jesus is the king who used his power for us. He's the priest who used his access for us. And when we see it, when we really see it, it changes our heart. Jesus, the king the priest, a king who loses his power for his people, uses his access for his people. He is the good king. Let's pray together this morning.